0: If I were only to make a few comments and then we would stand and sing, it would already have been a good service and we would say it has been good for us to be in the house of the Lord. The songs that we have been able to share with one another with a focus on Jesus as the solution have been heartfelt and I believe sung from the heart. And the prayers in which we have been led and are partaking of the Lord's Supper have all been focused on Jesus as the only solution to the greatest of all problems, and that is sin, the need for salvation, and the hope for a home with God in heaven. Open your Bibles, if you'd like to, to a text that is likely familiar to many of you. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, where we're going to spend most of our time together this morning as we think about what it means to be a completely furnished Christian. The fact is, is that most of you who are here this morning or those who may be listening in the parking lot or those who may be watching online are already baptized believers and are Christians Now, as we stated at the outset of our services today, there may be some who are here that are not Christians, who are not saved. And we are hoping that you'll make the decision yet today to do what is necessary to be called a Christian. Because in the world today, to be a Christian is different than what the scriptures have to teach on the subject. That's not the the scope of our study together today. But I think it bears mentioning that people use the word Christian very loosely. We talk about a Christian nation. We talk about Christian families. We talk about Christian values. without ever really thinking about what it means to be a Christian, which requires all the things that we talked about in our Bible class this morning in Acts chapter 22. As the individual Saul of Tarsus went to Damascus, was taught by Ananias, and was baptized, and then he became a child of God. But once we become children of God, we've got to continually work at being the kinds of Christians that God wants us to be. And so we're going to look at this text in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And we're glad to have you today, and we appreciate, as Brother Cameron said at the outset of our services, those that are visiting. We have a number of people who are from various places throughout uh, Tennessee and elsewhere in the country who are visiting with us, and we're glad to have you. We're going to focus our attention this morning on just about 35 words, at least in the New King James Version, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. And those 35 words are powerful and are uh, so valuable in understanding who we are as children of God. In fact... These two verses are often suggested as memory verses for those who are young as well as those who are old. And if you have ever gone to a preacher training course or a men's training class or uh, you've ever thought about what it means to preach, these verses are really at the core in terms of being memorized by those who want to know what the Lord has for us To do and to say and to teach. And he says that all scripture, we could spend the rest of our time just on those two words, all scripture. But he says all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, some of you have a different version, and I actually prefer the different version where it talks about not just thoroughly equipped, but it talks about thoroughly furnished or completely furnished for every good work. You know, if you search for an apartment or a home online, you can check a box these days where it says, do you want it to be furnished or not? And that makes things a whole lot easier when you walk into a place. When we moved here a couple of years ago, our place was furnished. Now, it was lawn furniture and it was a commodity of all kinds of different things. But it was wonderful to be able to walk into our house and have chairs and groceries because you loved us and cared about us. And we appreciate that so very much. But it's different to walk into a place where there's nothing, no chairs, no bed, no no groceries, no anything. But having something that is furnished is helpful And it equips us to do what the Lord wants us to do. I want us to start by talking about what I would call the post-baptism life. And there's a problem or a potential problem that all of us have faced who are Christians. And that is we are baptized into Christ. And that's a glorious day. That's a wonderful occasion. And that's something that is worthy of celebration and worthy of commendation. But after becoming a Christian, it's easy to kind of drift back or maybe say fall back into our old life of patterns. And consider, if you would, so many different warnings. We read Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 through 22 to get the full context. But verse 22 says, he that endures to the end will be saved. Well, that tells me that I cannot just become a Christian and then put my life on cruise control and then hope that everything goes swimmingly over the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years, however long you've got left. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, is written by the inspired apostle Paul, who says, I don't want to be disqualified in my walk or my faith and my journey with Jesus Christ. And so if Paul... Super Saint himself says, I've got to make sure that I govern myself appropriately. I want to make sure that I'm not on cruise control. If he has to govern himself that way, I've got to do the same thing. And the third passage that comes to mind that we sometimes quote is there in Revelation chapter 2, where Jesus says, I want you to be faithful even to the point of death. And that's a charge for us. And we live in a country, we live in a world generally that provides us with lots of freedoms including the freedom of religion and we're thankful for that we're thankful that we are not fearful today Uh, of something bad happening to us it could happen but we sure hope and pray that it doesn't but certainly it won't be because the United States government or the state of Tennessee says stop that worshiping of that God as was found in Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5 in the era of the the Jews or the, the the new Christians that were teaching God's word Paul's words encourage us here to not give up and to equip ourselves to more ably meet the post-baptism challenges. And it seems to me that there are a number of key things just in these two verses that really help us in meeting those challenges head on. And that's what I wanted us to talk about today. I want to look at five things that we are supposed to see or study or search or to seek as we try to do what God wants us to do. The first of those is simply this, is to make sure that we see Scripture as inspired. We want to see Scripture as inspired. There in chapter 3 and verse 16, and we're going to keep referring to verse 16 a lot in our study together today, it says that all Scripture is inspired. That means that Ezekiel chapter 35, whatever is found there, is inspired. It means that Habakkuk is inspired. It means that Matthew is inspired. It means that the book of Revelation is inspired. It means that every book of all 66, from Genesis to Revelation, is inspired by God and has some value to us. And incidentally, that's one of the reasons... Why? And I appreciate that the shepherds here insist that we study from both the Old and the New Testaments on a routine basis, and I hope that we do that individually as well, but we do that as a congregation, because there's value in looking back to the things that were written 3,000 or 4,000 years ago. And so we study those scriptures because all scripture is inspired. But what does it mean to be inspired? Well, you as good Bible students or those of you that have been around for a while know exactly what that means. But you may have never heard what it means to be inspired. But the word here literally means God breathing or divinely breathed into. It's the idea of God speaking directly to us. It has been said that Paul and Peter and James and John and Matthew and Luke didn't really write the. The Bible, And that's true. They are the ones who are using their pens or their quills to put it down on parchment or put it down on some form so that others can read it. But God is ultimately the author of this great book that we read from. God is the one who put these things in place. And this is different from so-called New Testaments that have been revealed in the last couple hundred years or last 500 years by certain religious leaders. This is God's word and we can take it to the bank. And we know specifically what it is that God wants us to know. In 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, it says, God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness, not just some things. Wouldn't it be a tragedy and a shame if there were other books of the Bible that were missing? You know, there are those in, especially you go on the internet and look up missing books of the Bible, and you can find all kinds of crazy things out there. But these are authentic books that are written by God, designed for our learning and for our inspiration. But wouldn't it be a tragedy if there really was something missing and we missed out on some truth that was taught by God some 2,000 years ago? We don't have to worry about that. We don't have to fret about that. We don't have to be concerned about that because we know all of what God wants us to do. And we know that there's no chance of confusion, no chance of contradiction or no sense of ambiguity because God is not the author of confusion, as is written in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 33. And finally, we know that it's not subject to human error. You know, when I write something, I might make a mistake. When I write an article or when I was in college and I wrote research papers, sometimes the professor may say, that's not exactly what I wanted you to get out of this particular text. You got it wrong. That doesn't happen with God's word. In Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 20, the text says, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture, zero, zero scripture, is given by private interpretation For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Those last two words go back directly to the point that I'm making here, and that is God's scriptures are inspired. They come from God himself. So if we're going to be a completely furnished Christian, we need to see scripture as inspired. That goes back to something that we talked about recently in one or by Bible classes, and that is God doesn't give us suggestions. He doesn't give us things that we ought to do. He gives us things that we must do in order to serve him in a faithful, complete way. See scripture as inspired. Secondly, we need to study the word for the purpose of learning. Because there are lots of different ways that we can study God's word. We can study God's word so that we can check the box say, I read a couple chapters this week. Or we can study God's word because the elders said we've got to study. Or the preacher said study this for your Bible class. But we want to study so that we learn. In 2nd Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 in the text that we are anchored to so close this morning. It says that scripture is profitable for doctrine. The word doctrine there is the same word for learning or teaching. Someone would sometimes use the word indoctrination with a very negative overtone to it. But let's look at it from a positive point of view. We are trying to indoctrinate ourselves with God's word. We are trying to get that doctrine in our minds so that we live it out completely. Now, the great value that we have that even Christians 2,000 years ago, even Christians 500 years ago, that we have that they didn't have is that we have the scriptures so easily and readily available to us. You think about it that you can carry a Bible anywhere without carrying a Bible. These days on your phone with your Bible app or with access to a a good website, we have the Bible wherever we go. And you're sitting there waiting for an appointment or uh, wherever the case may be, and you've got an extra five minutes, you can always take out your phone these days and look up and say, well, what does the Bible say about this particular subject? And within seconds, it's delivered to you. And the fact is, is the Bible is readily available because it is written for us for our learning. And let me suggest to you this, that this is true for those Those of you that are in elementary school, those of you that are in high school, and it's true for those in college, and it's true for even those of us who've been there, done that. And that is learning is by nature a process where we do not finish it. I remember in some of my liberal arts studies years and years ago, back in the Stone Age, that we talked about the idea of a lifetime learning and that was not just in spiritual education, but it was in education in a general sense. Always be learning, always be trying to learn new things. And there's nothing better to learn more about than God and His Word. So let me suggest to you three things that we continue to do. One is we continue the process of studying. Just back up a paragraph or so uh, in your text. And he says to the young man, Timothy, in good advice to anyone who wants to preach, anyone who wants to teach, anyone who wants to faithfully serve the Lord. He says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Some versions say study to show yourself approved. Study to show yourself to be a worker who is not ashamed that you may rightly divide. So we continue studying. What else do we continue to do? We continue searching. We are always looking for more. Isn't that what we famously talked about the Bereans doing in Acts chapter 17, where it says they search the scriptures daily. And let me suggest to you, And I talk about this from time to time uh, in different studies or different sermons that if we are not studying on a regular basis, whatever that may mean to you. With your schedule, we're not certainly as noble-minded as those some 2,000 years ago in Acts chapter 17. And thirdly, not only do we continue studying and searching, but we continue following what God wants us to do. You see, in Acts 2 and verse 42, they continued in the apostles' doctrine, there's the word again, following the pattern that was set forth by Peter and the apostles on that day of Pentecost back in Acts chapter 2. Simply put, we are going to be tested when it comes to God and it comes to his word. And we must know the material in order to pass God's test. Now, most of us don't like tests. Uh, Whenever the teacher says we're going to have a test next week or worse yet, you walk in that morning and say we're going to have a pop quiz today. That is not a fun experience. But we are going to be tested on our knowledge of God's word. Now, not in the sense, I don't think, that we get to the day of judgment and God says, all right, everybody take out a sheet of paper, number it from 1 to 20. And I'm going to ask you 20 questions about the Bible. But if we can't answer questions about God's word, how can we stand ready before him on that day? There will be an open book test. And the book will be open, the book of Revelation tells us, and the names will be read. And if your name is in the book of life, you are good to go. If not, you are not good to go. And so we've got to make sure that we study for the purpose of learning. We see the scripture as important and inspired. We make sure that we study to, lo- to the word to learn. And thirdly, we search the word for evidence. We are looking for evidence. Now, we are not looking to prove what it is that we might come to the table believing because there's a difference there, right? So I might believe that baptism isn't essential for salvation. Well, I can find a bunch of passages that seemingly prove, and I put that in quotes, that point. We had a young people study last night, and one of the things that we talked about was the fact that you can make the Bible say anything you want it to say. In one of the illustrations that David used very nicely was that the Bible actually says there is no God. The Bible actually puts out in black and white in the book of Psalms, there is no God. Except for the fact that it says that a person who makes that kind of a statement is a foolish person. So you can make the Bible and twist it however you want and make it say things that it really doesn't say. But scripture is profitable for reproof. The idea of reproving something and finding evidence for the things that we believe. We as Christians are to be sure. We are to be convicted. Not pompous, not arrogant, not I've got all the answers and you're wrong and I'm right. But I believe God's word. I am going to anchor myself to God's word. And there's nothing that you can do to take me away from God's word because it is that powerful. It is proven. And we see that not only through the Bible itself and its internal evidences, but these days you have more access to evidence studies and archaeology and geography and history and all these different things that seem to be further pieces of evidence that this book is indeed, as we said, inspired by God for our learning and for our evidence. Notice in Acts chapter 9, verse 22 which we read from a few weeks ago then in verse 22 it says Paul or Saul increased all the more in strength and he confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus and what did he do he proved that this Jesus is the Christ. If you want to underline the word proved, because Paul didn't say, well, I think that Jesus is the Christ. No, he's proving that Jesus is the Christ. Now, Paul was one of the greatest teachers ever. And one of the things that Brian pointed out today is in Acts 22, he didn't start out with the idea of Jesus as the Christ. He started out with Jesus of Nazareth. And then he gently, but yet forcibly and and continually pointed towards that we are taught, Talking about Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. The Bible is great in that it proves itself. The various things that are predicted and prophesied, and all the things that then come to fruition. When it comes to Jesus himself, there are some 300 plus prophecies about Jesus the Messiah himself. And of those 300, can you guess how many are not fulfilled? Zero. The only prophecy with an asterisk next to that that you could argue is not fulfilled would be the coming of Jesus when he returns and the redeemed are joined together with him. I've made reference to it before, but I have a book uh, in my library called All the Messianic Prophecies or All the Prophecies of Jesus. And it's about a 300, 400 page volume. And it goes through and it lists them and it gives some information about them. It's really kind of interesting. I actually used that years ago to teach a Bible class for about three months just on the prophecies of Jesus. But the fact is, is we could spend our time looking at all 300 of them. Let's just look at one Of them, and that is, I put a question mark what about the crucifixion of Jesus? Well, let's look at three passages in the book of Psalms uh, Psalm 22 and Psalm 34. We'll look at a couple of verses here just real quickly, and we will note that these are things that are written roughly 950 to a thousand years plus before there would ever be a crucifixion of Jesus. And in 22, in verse 16, he says, For dogs have surrounded me. Now, this is David writing. This isn't Jesus writing. This is David writing. He says, Dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. And then he says, They pierced my hands and they pierced my feet. He says in verse 18, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Chapter 34, Psalm 34 is more appropriately, we might say, verse 20. It says, he guards all his bones and not one of them is broken. Now, if I were to go back and write what happened in the past, that's history. And that's not that impressive. Interesting, but it's not that impressive. If I flip it around and I write about things that are going to transpire in the future... Now, that's something else. That's exactly what's transpiring here. Because we're talking about Jesus' crucifixion? Question mark. Let's talk about Jesus' crucifixion. Well, Let's look over very briefly at verses that are very familiar to those of us that are students of the Bible. But in Luke 23 and verse 33, where they had come to the place of Calvary, what did they do to him? They crucified him. In John chapter 19, verse 23 and 24... John the writer and the close friend of Jesus comments on it, and he says, One of the soldiers pierced his side with his spear, and immediately blood and water came out, that the testimony is true, that you may believe. Go, go back to verse twenty three, where it says the soldiers had crucified him, they took his garments, made four parts. Didn't we just read that somewhere? I think a thousand years earlier we had read that transpired. And they said, Therefore let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, verse twenty four so that the scripture might be fulfilled, which goes back to Psalm 22. And then verse 37, they shall look on whom... They have pierced. The point that I'm trying to make is a simple one. And that is when we search God's word, we see more and more and more evidence. And that's one of the reasons why Old Testament studies are so important. Because it helps formulate the evidence that is found in the scripture itself. And it proves to us that this book is really real. It is authentic. Number four, we need to use Second Timothy chapter 3 verse 16, and find out that Scripture is there to help us to straighten up when we mess up. Scripture is profitable for correction. I would make the argument, and I think you would agree with me, that Christianity requires a reformed lifestyle. We are reforming ourselves. Now, it's not a matter of, well, I'm a Christian, I've reformed myself, and after a week, I'm good to go. Again, we'd like to put ourselves on that automatic pilot, but that's not the way that things seem to work. But the fact is, is Christianity requires a reformed lifestyle. I want to look at two passages that are both from the Apostle Paul: one in Romans chapter seven, and one again to Timothy. You say, well, we're focusing on First and Second Timothy a lot, but then again, if you are a young preacher or a young saint, you need to learn these things that are going to help you to be the completely furnished, equipped Christian. In Romans chapter 7, in verse 24, Paul actually says in one of the most stark and drastic statements, he says, I am a wretched man. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Now this follows the paragraph that is one of the most challenging paragraphs to read, at least in the English language, because he says the things that I will to do are the things that I don't do, and the things that I will not to do are the things that I end up doing. And it can be a little bit confusing, almost like a tongue twister in Romans chapter 7. But simply put, Paul is saying, I know what's right, but yet I choose to do what's wrong. I know what's wrong, but yet I choose to do it anyway. And he says, I don't know why I'm doing that, except I do know why I'm doing that. It's because I'm a wretched man. It's because I'm a human being. And you may say, well, that's the, that's the rottenest message ever. Except notice what happens in verse 25 where he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ that I might serve the law of God and no longer be a slave to sin, as he talked about in chapter 6. Or in First Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15, the apostle writes to the young evangelist and he says in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15, he says, This is a faithful saying. Here's something that I'm sure of and worthy of all acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Paul is writing from experience. He's saying, I look back at my past life and I'm disappointed with the way that I've conducted myself. But he says, what I'm doing is I'm reforming myself because Scripture is there to help us to correct ourselves. None of us enjoy being corrected. We do not like our parents telling us you shouldn't have done that. We do not like the police telling us you shouldn't have done that. We don't like it when the preacher says something and and even though you appreciate the truth, it feels bad because you've got to make some sort of a change. Or when a shepherd comes to you and says, I want you to be more cautious with your choices. We as humans don't enjoy making those mistakes and making those errors. But God enjoys human, what we would call, determination to do what is right. And you go back and you look at the examples that are listed there of Moses or Peter or David, certainly me and certainly you. It is true that we make errors, but within what we do, theoretically, with God's word on our side, because it tells us what it takes to be corrected, We say, I'm going to go forward to make improvements and to do better in service to my Lord. The Bible is the guide that helps us see our wrongs and then to correct them. Well, fifthly and finally, what it is that the completely furnished Christian looks like is one who seeks training in the word. All of us are in training. Now, it is more obvious than not that some of us are not in physical training. Uh, I speak for yours truly. Uh, if training involves maybe eating a little bit too much, then I'm, I'm trained quite well. But the fact is, is we are all in spiritual training. We are still in what one friend of mine talks about, the idea we're in boot camp, where we are learning the basis of Christianity and then we move on and we learn more. Because scripture is profitable, Paul says, for instruction In this particular text. The fact is, is Christianity requires the word to be our tutor. Now, that word is used in Galatians chapter three when it talks about the old law being our tutor to bring us to Christ. And we are no longer under the schoolmaster. The King James Version would say but that doesn't mean that we're not still with a tutor. You know what a tutor is, right? If you were taking Algebra 2 and you were like, I just cannot figure out what these variables are and what these formulas mean, you might hire a tutor. And you would pay someone to sit there with you as you go through your problems and you go through the formulas, and he or she would help you to understand those algebraic formulas better. Well, we have a tutor. Now, we might argue that we have multiple tutors. We have our brethren Uh, We have preachers, we have elders, we have our Bible class teachers, we have our parents. But the ultimate tutor is this. This helps us. Okay, I can't figure out what the best decision is to make about my job or about my recreation or about my potential mate. Where could I go for advice? I'll go here because here's where the best advice is found. That tutoring is a key responsibility, certainly, of parents and adults in terms of their children's upbringing. We won't take the time to read Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 4, where it talks about parents bringing up their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, it talks about fathers and their roles, and talks about mothers and their roles. But the same is true as adults. We have to work to train ourselves by reflecting and examining and never be satisfied with today. It goes back to 2 Peter chapter 3 where it talks about growing in the grace. It doesn't say stay in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. It says grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. There's a difference there, right? If I'm just going to stay there, I can just kind of, again, coast along to go back to where we began. But I'm growing. I want to learn more. I want to be more. Well, let me conclude with one final big slide here, and that is, uh, why does it all matter? And I think we've already proven why it matters, but it seems to me that the reason that it matters is the very next statement that is made by the inspired writer Paul when God speaks to us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and he says, so that the man of God... So that a Christian, so that you and me may be complete, thoroughly furnished for every good work. We want to be men and women of God. More than anything else, that's what we want in our lives, in our reputations. I would hope that you would all agree with me that when this life comes to an end for you, when it comes to an end for me, that when the preacher stands up and says a few nice words about us, that they not only talk about our occupation, not only talk about our family, and those are good things, and our hobbies, uh, but they talk about our spiritual development, our spiritual anchoring, the fact that we are Christians. You know, there are times where local funeral homes will call on preachers and say, hey, there's a family that—and I've done a number of these services uh, in various states. And they'll say, this person doesn't have a church environment that they grew up in or that they died in. Would you be willing to do their memorial service or speak at their funeral? And, you know, I generally will say yes if I can because, one, that's an opportunity To teach the truth to people who probably need the truth taught to them. But I've gone sometimes and I'll say, Will you give me some information about Mr. Smith? And it's all about their career, it's all about their family, it's all about their interests. And you know what is starkly missing is that there's nothing spiritual about that person. And that's sad. I did a service for someone probably five, six months ago where someone had called on me and a non-Christian friend of mine heard about the service. I was reflecting with him one evening and I said, well, this is what I did today. And he teared up. He's a believer in God. He's 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 off on his beliefs, but he's a believer in God. And he teared up and he says, that must have been some sad service. That must have been some sad occasion. And he says, because I'm thinking about where he is right now. That was someone who wasn't a Christian, but yet had enough spiritual depth to him that he understood this person probably is not in a good place right now because he didn't have any any church environment. He wasn't a Christian. He wasn't a follower of the Lord. We want to be men and women of God. If your tombstone doesn't even say your name and it just says man of God or woman of God, you're good to go. (laughs) That's all that matters, as long as you really are. Because that's what truly matters. We want to be complete, which means being perfect. And we want to be furnished or equipped to do God's work. So what is it that the completely furnished Christian does? He sees scripture as inspired. He studies the word to learn, searches it for evidence, straightens up when he messes up, and seeks training in the word. That's what we're trying to do. And I'm convinced that you might say, well, you didn't really say anything that was brand new to me today because that's why I'm here. But as we have said from time to time and as others have said, we want to be reminded of the importance of of growing And being the kinds of men and women that God has asked us to be. I have talked largely about those who are Christians, but there are some who are here that maybe have never been baptized to have your sins washed away. And we would want very much to talk to you about your soul's condition so that you're not like that man that I talked about a few moments ago. We want it so that when you die, we're sad, but yet we say, you know what? He is truly in a, to borrow from Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, a far better place. And that's what we're hoping for. And we can help you with that because God's word gives us the training and the tools to help us to help you become a child of God by being baptized this morning. If that's something you're ready to do or if as a Christian you're not being as equipped furnished as you should be and we can help you in that process we'd love the opportunity to pray with you and to pray for you to strengthen you to study with you at your convenience if we can help let us know while we stand and sing All things are ready. Come to the